0: This is the Innovation Civilization Podcast, and my name is Waheed. Today in the podcast, we've got a very special guest, someone whose work changed the entire study of change management. His ideas and books help mobilize people around the world to better lead organizations in an era of increasingly rapid change.
1: Hi there. I'm John Cotter. I am the Kineske Matsusha Professor of Leadership Emeritus at the Harvard Business School, and I'm the Executive Chairman of the Management Consulting company that is named after me.
0: Professor Cotter wrote 22 books on the topic of change management, 12 of them bestsellers, sold 3 million copies of his 1996 book called Leading Change, which was selected by Time Magazine as one of the 25 most influential business management books ever written in the history of humanity. The frameworks he developed, for instance, Cotter's 8 Step to Change Management is applied by most companies and taught in the textbook at most business schools around the world.
1: The level of change, the volatility, the uncertainty when we first started studying this only 30 or 40 years ago is significantly less than what we're seeing today. Anybody who thinks that change is a constant, it's always been the same. I mean, you have no idea how different it is from 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago, much less 20,000 years ago. And that's what my work is focused on. That took me very quickly to the question of leadership itself and the fact that in businesses, those that were prospering the most were significantly better at Mm. adapting to a more rapidly changing world, more Mm. volatile world, a more uncertain world. And that's what took me to the topic of change, which I've been drilling deeper and deeper into.
0: We elucidate on this episode, the core distinction that Cotter first discovered which is between management and leadership.
1: Management is a set of processes that have a certain function. It's to take even large groups of people that are spread out geographically and make them achieve something that they know how to achieve efficiently and reliably. So it's on time, on budget. The first graduate school of business was Harvard in 1908. We invented, or our forefathers invented management in the late 19th and early 20th century. And what it does, through a set of processes we associated with planning, budgeting, with organizing, with staffing, with measuring and metrics, controlling and problem-solving, is really quite remarkable. Arguably, it's one of the biggest social innovations in the past two centuries. Management is not leadership. Leadership is very much tied to the whole concept of change. And it does it not through planning, budgeting, etc., but through creating a vision of the future and what what the opportunities are and how we might look if we take advantage of those opportunities. It's very much about communication, not just to tell people, but to win over their hearts and minds that this is something that makes sense and to pull them in to the point where they want to help you with exploiting the opportunity. And then it's creating the conditions that give people some rope and empowerment, if you will.
0: John Cotter also talks about the eight-step framework that he basically developed in the 90s and how things have changed since then, since the release and then the evolution and the usage of that framework over time.
1: the fundamental structure of the framework, we find people are still using it today very, very successfully, but there are differences. Back when we found it, in a sense, companies would face some kind of a external event, maybe a technological breakthrough by a competitor or through a university, they would then, in a sense, go into the corporate closet, take out the suitcase, mark okay. change, kind of read the instructions, march through my eight steps, and if they did it well, you know, declare victory at the end, pack this stuff back up into the suitcase, put it back in the... And that's no longer reality. Reality now is At a minimum, you've got to have the suitcase out all the time. More importantly than that, it's got to be beyond a suitcase. It's got to be inside people. It's got to be inside your organization. It's got to be integrated in. Because the number of strategic initiatives that demand non-trivial change, it can't be just order. For a typical uh, firm of some size, it is 10 times what it was 40 years ago, easily. And that means they're always involved in three or four or five major change initiatives. So they're always dealing with this stuff. It's not episodic, it's continuous.
0: On this episode, John Cotter also talks about his very latest book that he just released a few months ago as well.
1: The new book, which came out about nine months ago, call change, posits what I believe now, which is we've got to the point where we can realistically and accurately say there is an emerging theory of change, which takes us beyond you have an opinion about how to change things. I've got an opinion. Everybody's got an opinion. No. There's an emerging science that's based on the study of the modern organization. It's based on the study of human nature through brain science and the like, it's based on the study of leaders and leadership and how they make things happen at the CEO level or at the junior
0: level. That and much more coming right up on this very action-packed episode. John Cotter, welcome to the Innovation Civilization Podcast. What a great, great pleasure to have you here today, sir.
1: My pleasure, Waheed. Brilliant.
0: Brilliant. John, you've been one of the stalwart figures in change management for the last few decades, writing a whopping 22 books in your lifetime. Can you tell us a bit more about your background, how you got started, how you got into this field of change management in the first place? What made you interested? I want to learn more about yourself, basically.
1: I've been interested in the topic of performance. Performance, broadly speaking, ever since I can remember. And I'm not sure why. I mean, literally, the performance of K-12 education when I was a student before college, the performance of the families in my neighborhood, right. where some were wonderful places to visit and prosperous, and some were kind of sad. Then on to the performance of government, business, et cetera. My doctoral thesis, I, I got a uh, science degree at MIT as an undergraduate and an MBA at MIT, and then a doctorate at Harvard in organizational behavior and my doctoral thesis was on big city mayors during the late 1960s and the late 1960s were a very tumultuous time in the united states lots going on lots of surprises lots of change lots of turmoil the
0: civil rights and and sexual revolution and everything oh Yeah. yeah
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. And and ultimately, we studied 20 mayors up close, not from sitting in a library, but me on a plane and in a, a car of mine traveling around the United States. The difference in the performance between the three best mayors, best in terms of the impact they seem to be having on their cities, and the three worst was, to my surprise, not significant. It was galactic. If I graded the three best mayors as A, the three worst, Wouldn't have gotten D's or E's. They would have gotten Z minus Z. Right, right, right. And I don't know when it first. Struck me, but pretty soon after that work, I think it dawned on me that if you could increase the average positive impact of these uh, mayors and these cities, city governments, just a little bit, the impact it would have on the lives of millions and millions of people would be significant. There was a lot of upside opportunity and possibilities that were not being seen. And I became fascinated with the question of why. How do you grab that upside opportunity? Opportunity. Is that really available on a regular basis to governments and to businesses? And if so, why and what do you do to really prosper and benefit a lot of people? And that's what my work is focused on. And that took me very quickly to the question of leadership itself and the fact that in businesses, those that were prospering the most were significantly better at mm-hmm. adapting to a more. A rapidly changing world a more mm-hmm. volatile world a more uncertain world and that's what took me to the topic of change which I've been drilling deeper and deeper into and the level of change the volatility the uncertainty when we first started studying this only 30 or 40 years ago mm-hmm. is significantly less than what we're seeing today anybody who doesn't who thinks that you know change is a uh, constant it's always been the same I mean you have no idea how how different it is from 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago, much less 20,000 years ago. I mean, it is so different. The average business and government has a long way to go to be as adept at spotting opportunities in that changing flux, capitalizing on those opportunities quickly, smartly, agilely, and in the process, prospering and benefiting a lot of people. They've got a long way to go. But the possibilities there, And I've been watching Mm -hmm. people get better and better at it, especially over the last decade since we founded the consulting company. The possibilities are just fantastic.
0: Right. Okay. And I think you touched on this already. But in terms of when you first started looking into it and today, obviously, you talked about how there's the pace of change is much more. I know in tech and business likes with this quote, basically that software is eating the world. You know, if you look at the technological S-curves, they're getting shorter. Shorter, and then market dominance for firms is probably more kind of short-lived than before. So how should modern firms react to this, basically? And what's the kind of blueprint forward, basically?
1: One simple way to think about it is the amount of change muscle you need in your firm. Mm-hmm. That is to say, build in capability and skill to deal with change. It's just been going up and up, and it's going to go up and up more. And for young people, I mean, in their 20s and 30s, the amount of change muscle that they need Personal to be able mm-hmm. to have the kind of careers they would like to have is going up and will continue to go up because that's the way the world is, and it's very much driven by technology, and it's been that way for thousands of years. I mean, the latest big jump up, of course, was the Industrial Revolution. And then we've got computers 50 or 60 years ago. And then the internet and just digitization in general is just having an effect on the world that is uh, greater and greater and greater mm-hmm. and producing both threat and just wonderful opportunities.
0: And when you say change muscle, how would you define that exactly? What do you mean by that?
1: Change muscle is a kind of a... Uh, combination of things. It's a mindset about recognizing that uh, the world is changing faster and more volatile It's a, a set of skills associated with what we've learned about what Mm -hmm. uh, change leaders do, it's a organizational form that is not the most common at all organizational form out there today that helps you to be both managed superbly well, but also led well in a a ever-changing environment. And it's a tendency to think much more than most companies, most governments, most individuals do in terms Mm -hmm. of opportunity.
0: Cool. That makes sense. And I know the first ever kind of framework you came up with was basically 96, the eight step change framework. Do you think that that's still kind of valid or would you add anything to that or modify that in any way, basically?
1: The fundamental structure of the framework, we find people are still using it today very, very successfully, but there are differences. Back when we found it, in a sense, companies would face some kind of a external event, maybe a technological breakthrough by a competitor or through a university, they would then, in a sense, go into the corporate closet, take out the suitcase marked change, right, open right. it up, kind of read the instructions, march through my eight steps, Yeah, and if they did it well, you know, declare victory at the end, pack this stuff back up into the suitcase, put it back in the closet, right, I see. And, and that's no longer reality. Reality Now is at a minimum, you've got to have the suitcase out all the time. (laughs) <laughs> More importantly than that, you've got to, it's got to be beyond a suitcase. It's got to be inside people. It's got to be inside your organization. It's got to be integrated mm-hmm. in because the number of strategic initiatives that demand non-trivial change that can't be just ordered for a typical uh, firm of some size is 10 times what it was 40 years ago easily. And that means they're always involved in three or four or five maybe. change initiatives. So they're always dealing with this stuff. It's not episodic, it's continuous. I think another piece that is different today just because of all of the scale is Mm -hmm. even back then we said getting people to buy into whatever your vision is and getting them mobilized was important. Today, we'd say the evidence suggests that more leadership from more people, as many as you can get, as long as it's aligned, it's not going off in 43 different directions, is Mm -hmm what it's all about. I can come back to that later. And increasingly, the the name of the game is sustainability. That is to say, not just one brilliant initiative that kind of takes you a leap in some direction that makes sense, that capitalizes on an opportunity, but some kind of sustainable process that helps you to do that again and again and again as the world changes again and again. And that is much more important and than it would have been 20 or 30 or 40 years ago.
0: I was reading your book on the Accelerate book that recently came out, right? I say recent has still been a couple of years, I guess. And I think I saw the kind of eight accelerators you put out there, which is quite similar to the eight step model you had in 96. I'm just going to read it out for the audience just so that everybody has an idea. So the first accelerator was create a sense of urgency. The second was building a guiding coalition. Third was form strategic vision and initiatives. Four was enlisting a volunteer army. Me. five was enable action by removing barriers six was generating short-term wins seven was sustaining acceleration and eight was instituting change so would you say that this kind of framework encompasses all the recent changes you just saw, talked about compared to 96
1: yeah and we use the word accelerators as opposed to steps because steps mm-hmm. really does sound like you do it once and you stop right okay accelerators sound like it's something that you're using all the time it's Puts a focus on what you're trying to achieve, which is not just change anymore, but it's accelerated change because the world is accelerating
0: Mm. around you. Okay, cool. That makes sense. So, one question that I have for you, and I think this is quite recent, basically, in a way that, you know, we just had the pandemic. Basically, there's a war going on right now in Europe, just like how the 20th century started. But amongst all of that, one kind of big thing that has changed, I think, in organizations is the way they work, you know, i.e. virtual slash remote working. So in terms of a society and companies where a significant number of your employees are actually remote across the globe, how do you kind of implement and manage change successfully in that new canvas, which is virtual work? What do you think of that?
1: Well, what we had found at the consulting company at Cotter International is that first when COVID came along in March of 20 20 and uh, we had to close our offices along with everybody else. We really wondered could you do the kind of work we're doing virtually or was that going to just be impractical? And people went on an innovation streak for the, mm-hmm. the next few months, constantly asking, "Okay, don't say no." <laughs> say, what new opportunities does this technology offer us to not only do what we did before well, but maybe even to do some of the things we did before better or to be able to do things we couldn't do before. And with that kind of a mindset over a period of six months, the staff pretty much turned everything that was done face-to-face and was assumed would only be possible to be done face-to-face into. To a virtual world of service providing. And I think over the next few years, just on that dimension alone, which is where people work, how they use virtual, how they use the offices, et cetera, there's going to be lots of the smart players are going to recognize that this is tricky, that innovation is needed, that there is no simple solution to this, that they should be looking for opportunity in this, not just to go back, but to go better. And I think some 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 people are going to be hurt. I can see already some firms that seem to think that they've got a few people at corporate headquarters, you know, in a conference room designing the new way of work. They're going to give it to the executive committee. They will approve it with a few tweaks. Then communications will send it out. And what they will run into is significant numbers of unhappy people who understand a world that the executive committee does not. And two, they will... Have missed all kinds of ideas that are floating out there right now among their staff who are Mm -hmm. living this every day that they haven't collected that they haven't allowed to people to uh, or found a vehicle for which people could speak up and they could collect the best of those ideas and then get people to help them to implement them, which is a shame. But it's going to happen,
0: right? Okay. Shifting gears a little bit. So one of the most interesting things I found in your work, and this is a concept I was thinking thinking through, and then you kind of articulated it in a particularly beautiful way and gave it linguistic form basically, was the difference between management and leadership. So just for our audience, can you explain by what's different between management and what's different between leadership and what should be like the ideal mixture between the two?
1: When I first came across this and started conceptualizing it in a way I'll describe in just a second. I thought it was important. Today, I think it's, central to so much because, well, let's let's back up. What is management? Management is a set of processes that have a certain function. It's to take even large groups of people that are spread out geographically and make them achieve something that they know how to achieve efficiently and reliably. So it's on time, on budget. And that sounds like, well, that's no big deal. But a century and a half ago, virtually no one knew how to do that with large groups of people. Remember, the typical size of an organization a business or a little piece of a city government right after the Civil War in the United States, so we'll say 1865, 1870, same in Europe, was how many employees, do you think, Wahid? Any guess?
0: I don't know. 50? 100?
1: Okay. You're leaning in the right direction. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It it was about five.
0: Oh, right. Okay. Cool. 10% of that. Okay.
1: (laughs) No, it was a world of lots and lots and lots of small farms, small shops. Mm-hmm. Manufacturing as we know it of any scale had just begun to arrive in textile. Railroads required more people to be able to create those organizations and run those organizations. And management as we know it did not exist. The first school of management in the world was about 1887 and that was University of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. the Wharton School of Business. They gave an undergraduate degree because because business was saying, help. I mean, financers, you know, the JP Morgans of the world were saying, I need a cadre of people who know somehow how to keep chaos from ensuing inside Mm -hmm. these wonderful opportunities I can see. And the first graduate school of business was Harvard in 1908. We invented, or our forefathers invented management in the late 19th and early 20th century. And what it does through a set of processes we associated with planning, budgeting, with organizing, with staffing, with measuring and metrics, controlling and problem solving is really quite remarkable. Arguably it's one of the biggest social innovations in the past two centuries. But management is not leadership. Leadership goes Mm -hmm. back forever. And leadership, if you study it carefully enough, both historically and today, its purpose is to create those systems that managers manage or to change them in significant ways to take advantage of new opportunities and to avoid new threats. Mm -hmm. So leadership is very much tied to the whole concept of change. And it does it not through planning, budgeting, etc., but through creating a vision of the future and what the opportunities are and how we might look if we take advantage of those opportunities. It's very much about communication, not just to tell people, but to win over their hearts and minds that this is something that makes sense and to pull them in to the point where they want to help you Mm -hmm. with exploiting the opportunity. And then it's creating the conditions that give people some rope and empowerment, if you will, so that those who get it and want to help actually are not put in small boxes with locked cages, but are allowed to get out there and provide leadership, which collectively can indeed make change happen despite barriers. And extremely difficult circumstances. Now, with that way of thinking, as you can imagine, the big challenge for the world in the late 19th century and most of the 20th century was just learning management to be able to create the modern organization and to be able to have it be effective, efficient, reliable, high quality, etc. But if you look at today and certainly the recent past, the shift is now, it's not that management is no longer relevant, it's as relevant as it always was. But increasingly, the name of the game is leadership, to deal with a rapidly changing world because that's what leadership can do. And what we're discovering is, although it helps enormously if the most senior person in your organization has some leadership skills and deploys them daily, what is most characteristic of the organizations that we study and we help that do really well? is how well they mobilize larger numbers of people to, in concert, all play some leadership role or leadership for Mm -hmm. more people. The average young person today has probably been uh, given the speech about you are the future leaders at (laughs) college graduation (laughs) and has probably been taught nothing about leadership unless they lucked Mm -hmm. out and Mm -hmm. ended up captain of their sports team and had a coach who knew something about leadership. All of those people need to add to their developmental to-do list, if you will, Mm -hmm. leadership, not just in terms of its relevance if they end up running some large organization. It's relevance right now, and it's increasing relevance as they progress in their careers and as the world continues to move faster and be more tumultuous.
0: So if I understand correctly, management is about keeping the lights on. You know, you've already got your resources and your processes. It's basically running stuff on budget and cranking out the kind of incremental results, whereas leadership is about eating into new opportunities or reorienting the whole organization to avoid threats or going to new markets. So in terms of real life examples, would you say that that for example at apple steve jobs was more about leadership and literally reinvented apple from within basically after he came back the second time versus and the new crop of managers who were doing incremental innovations like tim cook and others were more management side of things if it's like a spectrum so steve jobs is more on the leadership side and tim cook would be more on the management so would that be like an accurate representation or what do you think
1: at his best steve jobs was a brilliant business leader. There's no question about that. And if anything, early in his career, when he was still a young man, he was not that either interested in or skilled at the management stuff. And so he grew Apple to a certain point where management was increasingly needed just to hold this larger entity together and make it function the way you just so well articulated. And he got advice from some somebody, um, not sure who was the central person, that he should find somebody in corporate America who really understood the management piece and bring him or her in to be a partner with Steve. And he did it. He he ended up going to PepsiCo and finding a chap by the name of John Scully and brought him in. Scully not only, of course, had learned a great deal about management at a big firm like PepsiCo, but he learned a great deal about corporate politics Mm -hmm. and the competition between a skilled corporate political player and a young inspirational tech leader, the former won. And Steve got kicked out. And if mm-hmm. you look at what Scully did then, is he just planned better. He budgeted better. He organized better. <laughs> he was more systematic right. with staffing, a lot more emphasis on the metrics. And of course, profitability went up. Innovation went down. A uh, rate of growth started to go down. And eventually, of course, some of the people who, Own stock and others who were interested in Apple began to complain which Mm -hmm. gave an opening for Jobs to get back in. And if you look at the story of what he did during the first four months, just four months, when he Mm -hmm. got back into Apple, I mean, it is a wonderful, brilliant leadership story of basically winning over the hearts and minds once again of a group of people doing things that on the surface looked like they would revolt. I mean, he went in and discovered they've got 35 engineering projects going on for new products. Mm -hmm. And he cut 90% of them. Mm. And you'd expect the engineers would revolt. They didn't because of the way he did it. It's the Mm -hmm. leader. It's not some management meeting with 73,000 PowerPoint slides that put everybody to sleep and get everybody (laughs) anxious. He got them through his leadership on an upward slant that is the biggest stock turnaround in the history of the corporation. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Now, you raise the question of what's happening now. Obviously, the current management is not Steve Jobs too, but I'm not close enough to Apple to know exactly what's going on. Would Apple be better off if they had, in addition to the very talented people they've got on top, some Mm -hmm. more of the Steve Jobs leadership juice? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes
0: okay cool it makes sense so i think you can conclude that basically you need both sets of people right right and if you have both within one person that's even better and that's what we should go for so is that kind of correct, correct. cool I think in your kind of work, you talk about this organizational life cycle of how they start off as like networks and then move on to more like hierarchies. Just for the sake of our audience, can you explain what you mean by that exactly and how that comes about?
1: Sure. Virtually all organizations, when they start off, even if they have in some drawer a organization chart and some policies and the like, they don't run that way. They run as kind of a tribe of people who are obsessed with some idea The the successful. There's leadership coming from at least strong leadership from one person. And, And very often, even the most junior person is put on the projects and is expected not just to manage the project, but to come up with some technological or market leadership with it. And that can go on for some time. But typically what happens if they're successful, they have to actually make something and deliver it and sell it and keep the books. And all of a sudden, you have... Have the need for managerial processes to get those efficiencies and reliability and keep things from going into chaos, and they start to be tagged on. In some cases, reluctantly. In some cases, not reluctantly. People understand it. This is normal to them. And over time, if they're successful for a while, you've got kind of a informal, values-driven, vision-driven, network-structured group of people innovating <laughs> like mad. At the same time you have them also in jobs that are hierarchical with rules and policies and processes, formal processes. And it works often in a very unselfconscious way. Or in other words, nobody could quite describe it. Mm -hmm. It's just the way we do things here, you know, and it seems to work. But inevitably what happens, and partly because people are not very self-aware of why things are working well, is as they grow, the management's stuff has to grow with it, or they get themselves into trouble. They go public, they start missing their quarterly projections, mm-hmm. and it all goes south from there. And over time, as the management stuff gets bigger and bigger, almost always it starts to get into conflict. It sees the leadership, the networks, and the vision, and all of this innovation in this not particularly well-organized, disciplined mm-hmm. startup group as something that is getting in the way, and they... You inadvertently or sometimes quite consciously crush it and you end up at the end of the kind of the life cycle a modern organization which is heavily managed all the way up to the very top. If you look at people's calendars on the executive committee, senior management, middle management, et cetera, the vast majority of time is keeping the lights on as you put it and the amount of time that is still spent in more of a networked arrangements to spot opportunity and mobilize people to quickly take advantage of that opportunity, the more leadership stuff shrinks Mm -hmm. and shrinks and shrinks. And if you have enough market share, if you have enough in the way of a deep, and wide moats surrounding your castle. These are barriers to entry, basically. Yeah. You can get away with that. For, I mean, IBM, GM is the best example. General mm-hmm. Motors got away with being overmanaged and underled for three or four decades before it all came crashing down because mm-hmm. they had a lot of, IBM did too for a shorter period. But it's amazing what you can do if you've got 90% market share. But the challenge now for everybody, and everybody, every smart organization has some sense that this is a challenge, is how do we not let go of our capacity to be systematic and disciplined and efficient Mm -hmm. and keep quality on standards? But how can we add on to that something that is more opportunity-focused and innovative? And some people are doing a much, much better job than others. But far too often, they don't have a useful way to think about it or conceptualize it. You really are talking about, in a sense, a dual system, Mm -hmm. kind of a management system and a leadership system, both cranking at high octane and high horsepower to deal with different challenges. Mm -hmm. And that if you don't work at the latter, it doesn't necessarily just happen. And certainly, the CEO standing up in front of an all-hands meeting and saying, I need more leadership for more people. People doesn't do it. Won't hurt. It takes some systematic effort and understanding.
0: That makes sense really. And in terms of this dual operating system that you talked about, so you've got your management, like a hierarchy, and then some kind of like a value streams or networks forming from that. Can you give us an example of a company or a place where you've seen this kind of dual operating system in work? And I think you also mentioned that very less number of folks actually get this system to work properly in the way that's like a dual function. So can you paint this to life for us, basically, and how this would work, this dual operating system?
1: We know it's possible to take a mature organization and create it because we've done it again and again and again at the consulting company. So that's my practical kind of scientific experiment, if you will, to Mm -hmm. test out the theory. My favorite example of a well-known company that during its early years, when it was passing through that stage of being both, having both a network work and a vision and values and a growing hierarchy and policies and discipline and didn't lose the former but held on to it as it grew is arguably by most measures the most successful company in its industry in the world in the last 50 years and I think it's because they got it right and holding on to a dual system and building it and using it and the industry is commercial airlines and the mm-hmm. company Southwest. If you know enough about their history, their third CEO, Herb Kelleher, besides being just an incredibly colorful character, clearly knew a lot about leadership, knew a lot about encouraging people to work outside of not only within management structures, but outside of management structures too, to get things done, that were more change-oriented and required speed, acceleration, etc. cetera. You don't think of airlines as a particularly innovative place. But Southwest, along the way over the past 50 years, has any number of times kind of pulled up some strategically smart initiative, executed it so fast that the competition didn't even notice. And that's contributed to the fact that they are, by most measures, the most successful airline in the world over the last 50 years. I could tell some stories they would take too long, but they involve people that are kind of buried in the organization who don't behave like bureaucrat, but who behave more like people at a startup, a middle-aged, lower-level supervisor in Chicago who picks something up at a cocktail party, goes to the phone and calls her boss's boss in Dallas at like (laughs) 11 o'clock at night at home to pass Mm -hmm. on this information as being the beginning of a tale which ends in Southwest winning a war that united was planning out in mm-hmm. California for a low-cost airline. Yeah,
0: that's quite interesting. Then, so there's like lots of easy access to information up and below the organization. So would that mean that you know Southwest has basically hierarchy, and then they've got different projects running at the same time, or how does this yeah, do a it, lot to work? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It has hierarchy, but it has projects that are more or less informal, and it has spontaneous stuff like that fight mm-hmm. against. United became organized after it got started by this woman picking up a piece of intel that she shouldn't have gotten. But it's not bureaucratic approach to something. It's more, again, what you would see at a startup where people, somebody runs in the door and says, I got it, I got it. And the six people run up to him and and it's not the six top people, it's whoever happens to be close to the door. And the next thing you know, they're talking about how they can exploit this opportunity and some of them have the time to do it. And it takes on its own much more organic as opposed to mechanistic shape. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the mindset too. To win in the type of world we're in right now, organizations of any size have got to think they are both machines and living entities, Mm -hmm. if you will. And there is no reason why you can't put the two together, even though they're different and they can clash. But if you have the right vision of what will work and how you can create it you will create it and it'll pay off for your customers for your employees for your stockholders etc
0: so one thing in the corporate world that i constantly see and this is in government as well that how do you bring the startup mentality to the company how do you bring a startup mentality to like a bigger organization how do you bring a startup mentality to government actors and organizations basically so to answer that question like what would you say are the key elements you know how would you bring that startup mentality.
1: Okay let's talk about to a government agency first. Sure. Trying to turn all of the employees in a government agency into people with a startup mentality is a little bit more difficult than building a spaceship that will get us to Jupiter in two weeks. Okay. But you don't need that. You don't need that. What you need is some subset of those people who have that natural inclination already. They may be frustrated with the bureaucracy Mm -hmm. and haven't been given the opportunity to really show their startup smart. You need a method to identify those folks, allow them to emerge, make sure that the people who don't want to join, if you will, that new force don't feel threatened and don't get in the way. And with 10% of the population in a government agency that starts operating, still does their job, the regular jobs, but starts operating on various projects and. the the like that are much more startup mindset type of pro- projects and processes, it's amazing what you can do. And you have some chance of executing it because you don't have two different groups. Remember, all of the people that are working on the innovation stuff and the opportunity stuff still have jobs in the hire. Mm-hmm. They still have friends and colleagues that are not a part of their new sets of efforts that they can talk to and that they have relationships and credibility with. And that's what, helps hold it together. As long as the senior management appreciates that this is the way we're going to run things, not as a single system, but a dual system and not as two separate organizations with different staff, which businesses have tried for ages. The track record on it is not great. One of my colleagues who was one of the first to point out that non-incremental changes were happening out there and that occasionally they were so disrupting an industry that they opened up a huge opportunity space. And if you could disrupt and then take advantage of the opportunity, I mean, it's amazing what could happen. But a lot of the people who read his material assumed that the only way you could do that was basically to have two organizations. You're today's organization that does today's products mm-hmm. with today's methods, very management, 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 and then a separate mm-hmm. innovation organization that's looking mm-hmm. to disrupt and find those. The problem with that is is the disruptor eventually has to use some of the assets of the mothership. That's where it all breaks down. Xerox, the people who ran Xerox, some pretty smart folks, figured out they needed, after being incredibly one of the most successful companies in the world in the 1960s, that they needed to go beyond copiers. And they decided that the amount of innovation that was coming out of Rochester, which was company headquarters, was very, very low. Everybody was just focused on producing more copiers incrementally better, cheaper, et cetera. And so they created the Palo Alto Research Center. And the Palo Alto Research Center, staffed with a different type of person, totally disconnected from Rochester, 2,500 miles away, indeed, to their credit, did invent some really cool stuff. And then the guys would look at Rochester and decide these guys were hopeless and spin off and create their own little businesses. Or people (laughs) would walk through and look at what they're doing and say this is really cool as Steve Jobs did and go off and exploit it. And that Palo Alto Research Center did virtually nothing for Xero. And that's because that's the wrong model. It has to be, you need the two systems that have got to be much more tightly integrated.
0: Yeah, I can't Understand some of the rationale of CEOs of trying to do it in a completely separate way just because you oh, want yeah. faster and you know, whatever. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. But I do get your point about ultimately when rubber meets the road in terms of actually inputting it to the market and to the current systems and current product portfolio, it can be a bit challenging, basically.
1: Or disastrous.
0: Or disastrous, indeed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, in terms of government institutions, so your original Harvard thesis, actually, you started off. with government institutions, right? But then now I'm guessing looks of it is that you work more with kind of corporate companies and and everything. So is there anything special or specific that government policymakers should be worried about or should keep in mind when it comes to change management and leadership versus like a corporate? Is there anything more specific to government basically?
1: Yes. Number one, most parts of government don't have competition in the same sense that businesses do. That means that the pressure on them to pay attention to what's happening out there, the pressure on them to avoid the threats, but also to find the opportunities is much less. So what government leaders need to do is to start off by simply recognizing that, not as a bad or a good, it's just it's an is. That's the way things are. That is going to require even more effort on your part to convince people that and to find ways to make make sure people are in tune with what's happening out in the broader world and what's happening with the groups that they're supposed to be serving, citizens Mm -hmm. or subgroups of citizens, so that they can understand the need for something more than a overly designed bureaucracy and more leadership for more people. We have done only, you're right, most of our business in the consulting firm has been in the private sector. But, you know, one of our, early clients was a military base, big one, where the general was just going crazy that no ideas seemed to ever come up from below. <laughs> of course, his staff killed them all and made it right <laughs> to, to the guys below that they should just shut up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and over a period of a year and a half, I'll be darned if they didn't pick up a new way of handling, examining the situation they were in, examining the problems and the opportunities and making changes. So mm-hmm. we know it's possible. And We're working with another government agency right now. But it is more challenging because the mindset is so different. And the mindset is not necessarily easily compatible with the leadership for more people and kind of movement outside the bureaucracy to make things Mm happen faster. But for you and Wahida and I, and for our friends and our children, it is going to be increasingly important that we figure out how to help overly bureaucratic government get in tune with the times or we're all going to suffer
0: so in terms of my next questions i guess this is like a more like a quick fire round where i ask you a question and then whatever comes to your mind you basically tell me cool so are you ready yep (laughs) awesome so most favorite book you've ever read?
1: I've got too many favorites. If you force me to pick one, I would probably pick The Origin of a Species by Darwin, not nothing recent, or Freud's Interpretation of Dreams. <laughs>
0: Wow, incredible. Why those two, though?
1: Because they're both getting at something about human nature,
0: which is very
1: fundamental, which is increasingly being understood through brain science and new technologies that have applications, by the way, in business Mm -hmm. and in government.
0: Okay, cool. Next one, most favorite turnaround story and why?
1: Oh, I got lots of turnaround stories I love. But I suspect my favorite is when a new guy gets brought in as president and and all the experts are predicting not just that the his organization, broadly defined, is going to have problems. They predict it's all going to collapse into a civil war, and by the time the smoke clears, there'll be at least a million people dead. Mm-hmm. And it didn't happen, and it didn't happen because Mr. Mandela did a brilliant mm-hmm. job of not only providing leadership himself, but of drawing from his community other people like the captain of the rugby team that was played by yeah. Matt beeman in that movie yeah that really that, happened. Just, yeah, yeah. yeah i saw that mm. yeah i love that story
0: okay brilliant next one is what is one of the most important principles that you live by
1: that's a good one i think i think the one of the one of the i'll use your language one of the most important principles is in the final analysis we're all homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. And if you can just hold on to that thought and think about the implications of that thought, it'll help you devise goals and behave in ways that actually are good for the human condition and for yourself. And when you lose that thought, and you don't think in terms of we're all homo sapiens, but we are fill in the blank, X and Y and Z and A and B and C, I think it doesn't help the world. And ultimately, it hurts
0: you. All right. Brilliant answer. Thank you very much. One thing you think every leader, CEO should start doing tomorrow if they're not already?
1: Spending more time seriously encouraging people to talk about and think about opportunities that are evolving because of the rapidly changing world, relevant opportunities to CEO's firm. The amount of conversation in a typical organization is too heavily leaning toward keeping the routine going or just dealing with threats.
0: Cool, cool, makes sense. Thanks a lot for that. So that's the official end of the round. But I've got like one last question, I guess, before we kind of wrap things up. And good job, we held for a whole hour here. So I saw that you've got a new book, it's called Change, right? I believe it came out last year or, yeah. So tell me about, this is the 22nd book, I guess. So what is this book about? What additional thing does it bring in? And yeah, just give me the pitch basically.
1: The new book, which came out about nine months ago, called Change, posits what I believe now, which is we've got to the point where we can, realistically and accurately say there is an emerging theory of change, which takes us beyond you have an opinion about how to change things. I've got an opinion. Everybody's got an opinion. Mm -hmm. No. There's an emerging science that's based on the study of the modern organization. It's based on the study of human nature through brain science and the like that's based on the study of leaders and leadership and how they make things happen at the CEO level or at the junior level. And when you put that all together, it helps highlight why we struggle. So often in a more rapidly moving environment. And it gives lots of diagnostic advice about what is needed. So it spells that out and then it shows you examples from the major ways that all organizations are trying to change themselves right now, either with developing and executing a new strategy, through digital transformation, through restructuring, Mm -hmm. through cultural renewal, through MA, through agile technologies sustainable agility and even broader social programs, and it ends with making the case for and helping to describe what more leadership for more people really means. Because a lot of people, senior people, can't quite imagine it. They've grown up in a managerial world in which it's just hard for them to imagine that some guy four levels down could ever Mm -hmm. provide any useful leadership. And yet the reality is we can come up with story after story after story about how unknown people to the executive committee, in the right environment, rise up and do things that are extraordinarily important. And if you can get enough of those and you can, you know, know what you're doing, you've got an engine that can maneuver through a faster moving, more turbulent world that is priceless.
0: That's amazing. And I swear this is, I think, my last question. What I think always is basically that, you know, we've talked about how great leaders are, you know, like we've talked about Mandela, Lee Kuan Yew, Steve Jobs. How do you actually train leaders? Is there like a model, like a factory model that you can crank out more and more leaders in society? I know I I think this is something that's always bothered individuals from Plato with Plato's Academy to, you know, even today. How would you say that can we train leaders, basically to train, to create more leaders, to have more leaders, like you said?
1: Number one is you've got to actually try to do that. There's a lot of leadership training right now that is basically teaching people how to be good managers. Right okay. Okay, number one. Number two, people grow after they've been given some ideas and some motivation, some inspiration to wanna act on those ideas through their own experiences. So you can give somebody the best training in the world and then put them in a box where they have no opportunity Mm -hmm. to be able to exercise or try and learn from that. And the latter is where companies fall down and government falls down all the time. They have have an implicit mindset that leadership is only relevant to the top 20 guys or less. Some companies, I know it's one, and they don't make opportunities available for people to rise up, try things in a risk-controlled way. We're not talking about chaos, kindergarten, you know, but that's how. You give people the opportunity, some will grab it, some will grow. You give enough people the opportunity, the, the total number adds up, and you started getting the kind of more leadership for more people that makes you adapt faster smarter cooler which is what we need
0: brilliant and with that we'll wrap it up well professor john cotter thank you so much for joining us today at the innovation Sociology podcast hopefully we'll have you back and when you have your 23rd book out hopefully <laughs> thank you very much sir for joining us today
1: my pleasure Roy.
0: brilliant Thank you very much for listening to the Innovation Civilization podcast. If you love the podcast, please subscribe on all major platforms as well as please share it with your friends and family. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon for the next episode.